Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Today, my good friend Michelle Woodward is back, and I know you guys are thrilled, and we're going to talk about how to find a creative solution when you don't believe you're a creative person. Before we get to that, though, I want you to I have a huge ask for you. You guys have been so awesome about going to iTunes and posting reviews and I've sent them to Michelle or other guests who've been on and I just love them. And right now I'm in the process of launching my new website. I know you guys have been hearing this forever, but today I'm actually going to be going and looking at, uh, my designer sent me this stuff and I'm going to be looking at it. But one of the things is I want to add testimonials. And so those of you that have done those iTunes reviews, if you wouldn't mind uh, sending me an email at hello at how she really does it along with a picture of yourself. And with that, you'd be giving me permission that I could put it up on my website. I'd love to be able to showcase you instead of just, I know I do these shout outs with you guys and your iTunes handles, but to be able to have a face and a name and where you're from and stuff. So if that's something you'd love to do and you'd like to be on my website, shoot me an email, hello at how she really does it. Take a picture of your review or if you want to write something and send it to me and maybe you'll get picked to be up on my website. So thanks so much for doing, taking the time to do that. Do that right now. Stop this and then come back because I'm going to be going through and collecting them and putting the final touches on my website and be launching it soon. So I'm really excited for you. All right. So back to Michelle and our conversation and I will circle back with you. Thanks so much for listening. Michelle Woodward, hello and welcome back, my friend. I am so happy to be here. Every time I'm here, I'm just the happiest person. (laughs) It's always really good to talk to you. And I have to tell you, this week has been so many Michelle Woodward moments. I've had listeners who've been sending me emails and said, oh my gosh, because one of our shows just went up last week. And they said that came at the right time. I've had clients who love it. Just every time I turn this week, your ears must be, you know, tingling on the other side of the country because your name has been spoken quite a bit this week. I'm feeling very Kardashian. Thank you so much for bringing that up. But it's, you know, I mean, when you set out to have a life of service and to, you know, make hopefully make a difference, it's really rewarding to hear that maybe it's actually working. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very cool. And just to know that, you know, these conversations are out there helping people and helping them move through their life. Cause, you know, we understand that impact when we're working one on one with our clients or groups that we're running. But to be able to have this where you and I get to have these conversations and then the ripple effects out in the world is very, very cool. So thank you. My pleasure. And you know, it's funny that you even say that because it's sort of, you know, people say to me all the time, gosh, how can you blog every week? I've been blogging since, as you know, since uh, November of 2006. I would say almost every week for that minute, for 10 years, almost 10 years. And um, people say to me, my gosh, how can you do that? How do you keep coming up with topics? And the thing is, is that people will stop me. You know, I'll be out somewhere and they'll stop me and they'll say, you remember that blog post you wrote about such and such? I haven't been able to get that out of my head and it helped me 
quit my job, start my new business, you know, do whatever goal they had. And I look at them and truthfully, I'm like, I actually don't remember writing that one because there's like hundreds of them, right? There, But it is so wonderful to know that, you know, some words I strung together have really helped somebody. That's it's it's actually extraordinarily rewarding and what an honor. It's a huge honor. A huge honor. Yes, I know when people say, oh, that show, and and then I have to go through the data banks of, okay, what was that show? And even trying to remember because at this point, you know, I'm nine and a half years into the show. That's a lot of shows. I think we're around five hundred episodes or something. It's hard for amazing. Hard for me to remember it all. So that's a body of work. Right there. <laughs> it is a body of work. And it's been fun. It's been a great evolution. And we're going to talk about, again, like one of the things that has been kind of uh, the common topic that I've been talking about is like the evolution of you. And we want to talk about the perils of being good. And you have a blog post, which I'll stick in the uh, podcast show notes. Um, but I want to talk about that today. You know, I think we are, a lot of us were raised as children to sort of be good boys, be good girls, you know, be a good girl, sit right there, wait for mommy. You know, I mean, I don't know how many times you heard that. I heard it like 10 million times. And I probably said it to my kids uh, when my kids were little too, you know, hey, you know, hey, well, mommy wants a good boy now. Be a good boy, get a good, be a good boy and you'll get a lollipop, right? Mm -hmm. And yet um, when we take that good boy or good girl sort of mindset into our work, or our relationships, you know, we're kind of setting ourselves up to fail because we're setting ourselves up to not be ourselves, to, you know, kind of um, comport to somebody else's idea of behavior they want to see. And um, sometimes just complying for sheer compliance sake, which really makes it hard to be authentic, to be real, to say you need something to say you want something um, because you're so focused on getting that pat on the head. So you read the blog post. What did you think? Well, it just rings so much truth, right? I mean, I lived that for so long of be a good girl. I mean, that's definitely, I think, indoctrinated in our society. Be a good girl. And then there's the promise that you'll live a good life. And what I have come to learn in my adult life is that you can do everything right and bad things can still happen. It's not, it's not the safety so that you're no longer vulnerable. Um, so I, I think it's a really important concept uh, for people to think about and thinking about, you know, who is it you want to be? And is it that you want to do this to please somebody else? Or who is it that you want to be that's in line with things that we've talked about, your values? Right. I mean, and and even having the the bravery to identify your values and beliefs, you know, and to allow them to be your own and not something you've inherited, which we, we have talked about that before. I do think the, the problem with being a good girl or particularly, let's just talk about being a good girl. Uh, and I'm not advocating, which some people do advocate, you know, break all the rules, you know, <laughs> be a bad girl and, you know, um, be a vixen and all this other stuff. I'm, I don't really, that's not really the thing. But as I wrote this piece, what I, I realized about myself is I've actually very rarely been a good girl, but I've always been successful. And so you might 
it's kind of counterintuitive. You know, be a good girl, play by the rules, do what you're told, wait your turn, be a good girl. And I actually have never done that stuff, but I haven't done it as a badass. Mm-hmm. I've done it as somebody who's just understood what the rules were, operated within the rules, and then did what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. But without being that kind of the jerk about it. So how are you able to bypass that, you know, social, uh, cultural expectation of be a good girl? Should I lay on the couch? Doctor, <laughs> you. you know, I, um, I, I really do think that, um, you know, in Myers-Briggs, I'm a ENTJ, which is less than 4% of American women have this type. It's the CEO type. Um, it's the reason so few women have it is because it is a classically kind of dude sort of thing. I mean, it's what you'd expect from a male military leader or a CEO. So if you think like the Myers-Briggs concept that you have this from birth, you know, so from birth, I've sort of looked at the world from a very small minority and kind of looked at the world in a different way than a lot of my female friends. And so I think it's just probably my my native temperament and my sort of orientation. And then the more I experience the world, I mean, you would see me and you know me, but you would see me operating in the world as somebody who's, uh, you know, uh, good, a good girl. Right. But I'm really not because I've always listened to that inner voice and I've always um almost always prioritized getting what I think I need to get, but not being a jerk when I do it. Mm-hmm. So it's hard. And that, and I don't think that's something we're really raised to do. I've tried to raise my children that way. Once I realized how damaging it was to say, good boy, good girl. Mm-hmm. Well, that good boy, good girl is such a shame trigger, right? And you're giving right. your power away to somebody else to determine whether you're good enough. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, and it's according to their, I call it the script, right? It's their script. They're the writers, directors, producers of this, of this play that you're, you have a role in. And then if you do how they want it to do and turn out, then you'll be a good girl or a good boy. But then it disconnects from your own inner voice, from who it is that you are inside. Cause this is somebody else saying, this is what you need to do to make me happy. And in the workplace, how this plays out a lot of times, let's just take women, but a lot of times women, you know, are so trying so hard to be good girls and trying to so, so hard to kind of do meet expectations. And actually it's not even meeting expectations. It's exceeding expectations. And at the same time being extremely self-effacing. So for instance, a woman in an office will often, someone will say, gosh, that's a great result on the Framistam contract. And the woman will say, well, yeah, you know, Tony and the rest of the team work so hard on that. Which on one level you could say, well, that's good because she's sharing the, the love and, you know, she's, she's spreading the wealth. And, but if she's not saying, yes, I'm really proud of my team, Tony and the rest of the group were just fantastic. Where is she in that whole, unless she does that, she's not in the equation. You know, I I actually was coaching a woman this morning who is thinking about presenting her female CEO with a um, revised job description. 
which would move my client to a different city where they have an operation. So basically she wants to take her role and drop part of it and take part of it to a new city and add a different part. And what came up was maybe I should ask for a, I mean, I should offer a pay cut because mm. I'm asking them to do me a favor. So maybe I should do them a favor. And this person is C-level, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm sorry. That's all right. Keep going. So, and, and so we had to talk about what's the motivation behind offering to take a pay cut. It's like people I know who say, I want to, you know, I want to go to a four day work week. So I'm going to take a 20% pay cut. And yet they are taking conference calls at eight o'clock at night. And, you know, if there's a conference call Friday um, or they have to travel on a Friday, they do it, but they have taken a 20% pay cut. That's being a good girl. But who's benefiting in that scenario? And the thing that we came to with my client is that she doesn't need to make a concession. She's still going to be the high-achieving, um, high-collaborating, uh, delivering person that she was in the previous role in this new role. And she's going to bring be bringing a ton of value. But I know what was operating in her brain was, I kind of have to be a good girl. Hmm. Well, do you think it's because that when we want something, there can be guilt about it? Like I'm doing something bad, like here, here's something that I want instead of how is this benefiting both the company and myself? Well, for a lot of people, as you know, I mean, I, I know you see this in your coaching work, but for a lot of people, even asking for one thing that they want mm-hmm. is extraordinarily uncomfortable. One, because they haven't had the practice. Um, they don't have a track record of people agreeing that they actually have needs that need to be met. Mm -hmm. Um, So asking for something can feel really uncomfortable. They also feel like they might be judged if they ask for something. So they don't ask for anything because they don't, then they avoid that uncomfortableness of being judged or they they're fearful that someone will say no, which I think for a lot of people being told no is shaming. Whereas I actually feel like a lot of times no is the beginning of a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's my White House training, you know? So it's like I would go, you know, my job at the White House, this is a complete distraction here, but when my job at the White House was to go ahead of the president and set up events. So, you know, you might have three days, you might have five weeks, depending on the size and scope of the event. But let's say there was like a week in advance of a 40,000 person event with the president of the United States. You know, if, if I went to a scaffolding company and said, you need to build a stage and a press platform and it needs to be done by this such and such date, they said, if they'd say it can't be done by then, that's just the beginning of the conversation. Cause you can't tell the president of the United States, you can't come then. The staging people can't get their act together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the beginning of a conversation. That's such a great concept to have, right? No is the beginning of a conversation. That's a growth mindset because then it's instead of letting it defeat you and shut you down, it's okay, how else can we be resourceful to make this happen? It's another coaching uh, client I had yesterday who really, really, really wanted to say no to something um, but was getting the uh, institutional feedback from her employer that nobody can say no to anything which is a little bit different than what we were talking about a minute ago. 
So I, I suggested, what, what if you tried, I, I'm not going to be able to do this, but what I can do is this. Like, you know, I'm not going to be able to get you the entire last 10 years numbers in the next 15 seconds. But what I can locate for you is this. So that's a classic, you know, a, approach is to, to really spell out, no, I'm not, I can't do this, but I will do this. That is you, a great you've heard about that before. Yeah. Sure you use that a lot. No, that's great. And it's also a great way to set a boundary too. And it's a great way if you're still like really pinged by this idea of, you know, I have to be a good girl. I want their approval. I want their appreciation. You can still still say, I will do these things, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to cook the entire Thanksgiving meal, but I will bring, bring three pies, you know? <laughs> it's lunchtime for me right now, and so I'm thinking of food. <laughs> so going back to this workplace and like good girls or the good boys, like how do you see the good boy syndrome manifest in men? There are a couple of different ways. Is that also... A lot of times good boys will attach themselves to a strong leader. So that strong leader could be female or male, but they attach themselves and they really become yes men um, or, you know, kind of, um, you know, mentees. I was going to say alkalites. They become sort of, you know, really attached to the leader and do whatever the leader um, wants them to. In some corporate cultures, it becomes a really a bro culture. And so, you know, then, then being a good guy, a good boy is really operating within that culture and and within those bro norms that really happen. And, and the third thing, I guess, is the, that men who are really driven by this good, you know, got to be a good boy are also the ones who sometimes get taken advantage of, get rolled over, get passed over for promotion, um, get the scut work. Um, and are really almost seen sometimes as disposable people within the workplace, in my experience. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that sort of thing? No, I, I've definitely seen that all. And um, the I, I, I look even further like outside the workplace of what's the cost to be the good girl or the good boy. And usually it, it comes out in other ways, right? Because there's this pushing down of oneself to please somebody else, or like I like to call it approval whoring. Um, But that pushing down of oneself, and then it comes out another way. So it can be, you know, in drinking, in being disconnected in relationships, uh, eating, um, you know, just other areas in their lives, maybe overspending. And so sometimes we think, oh, there's not this cost, because look at me, I, you know, I'm a key player with this strong leader, but there is a cost and you have to look at beyond just the workplace, don't you think? Yeah. And I think uh, what I've observed, the guys that are kind of, you know, they want to be a good boy and they want to, you know, kind of do, I mean, we all want to do the right thing, but to the point where they're kind of so self-effacing that there's nothing left. You know, I think that what what happens is they end up having a life that feels unfulfilling. Mm-hmm. You know, they get to midlife and they feel a little bit like, wow, what have the last 30 years been about? Mm-hmm. You know, who am I really? And, you know, and then there can be a lot of anger, depression, rage, and some of the substance abuse things that you were just talking about, all because they were trying to kind of conform 
to, you know, I, I said it in the blog post. I do think sometimes this be a good boy, be a good girl is somebody else's attempt to squash you, um, to, to control you, to, to help you be more, to make you more docile so that they can have, they can do what they want. Now, as a parent, you know, be a good boy. Let me put on your seatbelt. Doesn't, it seems kind of innocuous, right? Mm -hmm. Please be a good boy. I need to put on your seatbelt or please be a good boy. Eat your peas. But over time, this incremental getting that message really is, um, conform your behavior. So I get what I want Mm -hmm. where there's no you in it. Well, again, it goes back to that script. I have the script. I have the power. And you must do this so that I benefit. And it's not mutually beneficial. And the other thing is that with, and I think this is with both good girls and good boys, is there's a lot of regret. And another way it can manifest is disconnected family relationships. They've, They've given so much at the office, there's no capacity at home, right? And then at some point they realize, oh my gosh, here was this time that with my family that is now gone and, you know, I wasted it. Or maybe it comes to the point where they, they lose their position, you know, a leader changes within the organization and then they, they don't, they can't, they're no longer at that same position. And they look back and go, this is really unfulfilling. I have a, um, a client in an organization is paying me to coach this guy. And so I went in to talk to the CEO as I often do sort of saying, uh, what are your goals for the coaching? What would you like to see? And the CEO said something that was so interesting to me. He said, um, the client doesn't seem to be comfortable expressing his own point of view. Mm -hmm. And I looked at the CEO and I said, so you would like him to tell you directly what his perspective is and what his opinion is? He said, yes, that he said, I'm just not sure why he's not doing it, right? And so mm-hmm. then we t- I talked to the CEO about how to give the client the permission to do so, right? But this is also what happens when you're so worried about being a good boy or a good girl, you don't, um, and you get to a senior level within an organization, and you're being so compliant that you can't say to the boss, hey, there's a problem coming down the pike, um, our cash flow is such that we're not going to make payroll. Mm-hmm. You know, you wait until the day of payroll and then you kind of try <laughs> to hide it or you, you know, push things around. Or um, the worst case scenario is that you know that there's a problem coming down the pike. You say nothing, the problem happens, and then people find out that you knew and didn't say anything. One, your credibility is shot. Mm-hmm. Nobody trusts you. Your judgment is questioned. And then you're on thin ice in terms of being able to stay in the job. However, if you've been really worried about being a good boy or a good girl, it's so hard to be the one who speaks truth to power. You know, it's almost like the leader has to be able to be aware of what's going on and give you the permission. I want you to tell me when cash flow projection is wrong. I had another client that they found uh, f- they found financial mismanagement in one of the divisions, mm-hmm. uh, somebody left, they went and did like an audit, found huge amounts of problems. If you're a good boy, 
You just try to clean all that up and don't let anybody know. If you're a good girl, you just sort of, no, it's not that bad. I think I've got it, right? But if you're a real human being, you say, holy moly, this is a problem. And you say to the CEO, holy moly, this is a problem. Here's how we're going to fix it. But you need to be aware that this is the problem. Mm-hmm. That's not being a bad boy. It's not being a bad girl. It's being a human being. And that's what I was trying to get at, at the in my blog post is, it's not that you have to go to, to being a jerk from being a good, you know, go mm-hmm. the polar opposite. You just have to be a human being. You just have to be real and authentic and have a point of view and be yourself. You know, but when you're saying that, I think the root problem is, is that a lot of people, especially with the, the good boy, good girl syndrome is that they don't think their self is enough. What do you think? Oh, you're so right about that. I mean, they, they, because all along, you know, they've been, their self has been squashed. Mm-hmm. So they think they have to be somebody else. And because, you know, I work with very intelligent clients who've gone to all the big schools and have these high level positions and there's still that like inner fraud, like really? Because they always thought, oh, if I go to this Ivy League school, if I go to Wharton or if I, you know, wherever it may be, then I'm going to finally be okay. I'll be enough. Or once I get this title or I make this a certain amount of money. And, but they're, they've been constantly running from that kid that they didn't have a lot of confidence in. And instead of owning who they are, their strengths and their weaknesses or their light and their dark and saying, this is all of me. And then be willing to stand on, you know, I call it, you know, being rooted in wholeheartedness or being rooted in enoughness and then being willing to have courageous conversations and saying, look, here's our cash flow situation. This is uncomfortable, but here's some information that we need to know of what's going on within the company. Right. Right. And that's really grounded. There's no need to blame because a lot of times blame happens when people are rooted in shame. And so there's no need to blame. It's just a, it, this is a very factual thing. Now let's be resourceful and figure it out. What can we do about this? Where, where are our responsibilities? What can be done? What is our timeline like? And, you know, it just, it, it raises that, um, that specter of a thing that so many people struggle with, which is how to have, you know, a difficult conversation, a conversation where uh, tensions could run high and people could have, you know, could could lose their temper. I mean, I think a lot of people were never raised with how to manage when somebody else is losing their temper. Mm-hmm. We, some of us were trained to take care of others when they lose temper. Um, but I think you can have difficult conversations that actually don't ever turn into contentious conversations. And you do it by, again, going with the facts mm-hmm. and going and say, I uncovered $900,000 worth of fraud in the such and such division. And I've already alerted legal and they're on the way to the meeting and let's figure out a solution. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's just, you can handle that. And I think a lot of people put off and put off, put off difficult conversations because they're worried about how it could possibly go when, you know, you can actually set it up so it goes your way from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, and even, you know, people have a hard time being responsible for their own emotions, right? right. And, and they're people that I call it, we verbally vomit or we assault people with our words. And 
you know, just understanding that when all of a sudden an alarming thing of, okay, we're, there's $900,000 of fraud, it's going to trigger people. And in that moment, let them rumble with it. And don't take it on that it's your fault. They may say things because they're in their own shame storm. And to recognize that. And it's like, okay, once all the drama gets out now, let's take a look at this. Because does it help any when we're in this place of drama? You right. Know? right. And a CEO's thinking in, in the moment that a CEO is hearing there's $900,000 worth of fraud, the CEO's first thing is like, is like holy moly. Mm-hmm. They probably use other words. What am I going to tell the board? Mm-hmm. Is there going to be a lawsuit? Mm-hmm. Um, wh- what does this mean for our bottom line? And they may yell something like, you're freaking kidding me, right? Oh, my God. How the hell did this happen? Mm-hmm. And if you're the person who's bearing the message, you have to not take that personally. Mm-hmm. Like you have to realize they're hearing this for the first time. That was sort of my reaction when I heard it too. Mm-hmm. Now let's get to the solution. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And, and you as the messenger, you've been able to probably have those same reactions in your own privacy right? As you're figuring this out and being able to process it and have many sleepless nights probably. And then when you bring it to the CEO, that's the first time that they're hearing it. And it may be, it may come out depending on the leadership style or it may be within, right? But knowing, giving people that space to be messy. Like I think, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about this week, Michelle, is that we want things nice and tidy, and all cleaned up, it's like this perceived promised land. Like once we finally get here, it's not going to be messy anymore. We won't have to deal with these problems. Well, as you and I both know, is that there's always opportunities for problems to occur. And those can be growth opportunities and things are going to be messy, but it doesn't have to be defining us. It can be an opportunity for us to go, okay, here's a situation. This is not what we wanted, obviously, right? Especially in terms of $900,000 of fraud but this is what we have. Let's look at this and use our best selves to figure this out. Because when we get so stuck in the drama and we start telling stories about this and this and this, it doesn't help anything. It just creates more fear and scarcity and we are not our best selves. You know, I've referred to myself as a uh, recovering control freak. Mm -hmm. I think I, on your show, as a matter of fact, I've called (laughs) myself a recovering Control freak. And I'm a planner. I'm a to-do list person. You know, I'm, I have a vision and I move towards the vision. One of the things that's most disconcerting, I think, for people who are really highly involved with control is when something happens to shift their plan. Mm -hmm. So for instance, let's just say hypothetically that someone had a plan to pay off their mortgage in May Mm -hmm. and they get their tax return back from their accountant and all the money they were going to use to make that last mortgage payment, that last extra mortgage payment actually has to go to unexpected tax bill. Mm-hmm. You could freak out. You could get really angry because your plan to pay off your mortgage at the end of May or whatever is now, it's unachievable, mm-hmm. right? Or you can say, so good to know. Mm-hmm. Now I how great it is that I have the money to pay my taxes and I can pay off my mortgage in June. Mm-hmm. It's like hold on loosely as the old pop song goes, you know? So I, I feel like making a plan is so important. Having a vision about where you want to go, why you want to get there, feeling it before you get there, 
you know, feeling it as if it's already existed, inhabiting that just like an athlete would, um, a skier would visualize the gates before they do a grand slalom or a golfer, you know, visualizes the tee shot on the 10th hole at the Masters um, because it makes it easier when you do it in real life. I think that's really important for plans. But I also think you have to hold on loosely because one, your plan might come together quicker uh, or may come together in a way you totally did not expect that's equally valid, or it may turn out to be a pretty dumb plan. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're holding on to being a good girl or a good boy and you say, okay, my plan is to go to Stanford undergraduate, and then I'll go to Harvard Business School, and then I'll work for two years for Bain Capital, and then after that, I'll go with a boutique investment firm. Mm-hmm. You know, And you make this plan when you're 16, and it, it could go a different way that would be even more beautiful mm-hmm. and even more fulfilling. But if you hold on to that and you don't get into Stanford, which has a zero percent, <laughs> you know, whatever. But, you know, if you don't get in any any hitch along the way, it, it is a shame trigger mm-hmm. because you've got the, the plan that as a good girl, you're supposed to do. People expect you to do it. Well, you, and, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you. I mean, I'm sure you've observed this. Well, the good girl is another word for the blueprint. Here is the blueprint of success, right? That's the promise of the good girl. Do these things and you're going to live happily ever after in the promised land, which is all just a lie because there's no, there's no promised land. There's areas I believe that, you know, we get into like you're in the promised land of being a parent and adult kids, but there's still going to be rumblings and issues and, you know, hurt feelings, right? When we're in the promised land, there still can be hard things and to know that we can do hard things. But I do think that, and I was one of those people like so into the queen of certainty, right? Graduate from college, go to grad school, get a, a, get a tenure job, tenured at 29, have it all mapped out, you know, and this is what I'm going to be. But it wasn't aligned with who I was and it wasn't the right environment for me. So my soul wasn't feeling very good. And, but, but I kept going, but this is the plan. I'm living the plan. But it wasn't really my plan. It was somebody right. else's plan. Somebody else said, well, this is a really good job. Well, you know, why, why, why can't you appreciate this? Right. It's like the family who's, you know, our greatest hope is that our son becomes a doctor. Mm-hmm. And the, the kid is a good boy and takes all the science classes and takes all the, you know, all the undergraduate classes needs to take and then gets to medical school and realizes he'd really rather be a painter. Mm -hmm. But how do you tell your parents, you know, this is not who I am. It's one of the hardest, I think one of the hardest things that we're ever called to do. But again, it's in service of your, who you really and truly are. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and I think, you know, it was Thoreau who said the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I, I learned that in high school and I thought to myself, gosh, I never want to live quietly desperate. Mm-hmm. Although I think the difference is women lead lives of quiet obligation. <laughs> I think it's a little bit different for women. But, you know, so, but again, that living those lives of quiet desperation, of quiet obligation is again being in compliance with something you may never have agreed to in the first place. Mm-hmm. And 
if you are in compliance because you totally agree, you're totally down with it, I'm like, I'm going to be saying you go. Mm-hmm. But if you're in compliance because you've never taken a time to figure out what motivates you, what animates you, what makes you so, so happy, and then you put that in your life, then, you know, that's actually the recipe for disaster. But, you know, I think about, as you're saying that, we don't, as a culture, it's not taught. I mean, something I didn't know is always be more productive, be more productive, but giving ourselves time to reflect and to think, who do I want to be? You know, here's this culture. Is this something that I believe in or am I just following along? Because I believe that's the rules and that will keep me safe, right? Because a lot of times that, that pursuit of being a doctor or the pursuit of going to Stanford or the Ivy Leagues, right? It's the promise that your kid is going to be safe. They're going to be set. They have this education. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be set because you have this education or because, yeah, because you have this education, right? In this profession. But, you know, as you and I both know is bad things can happen to good people. And, you know, there can be health problems that come out. So maybe it's not a professional problem, professional workplace issue, but it could be health. There's always things. But giving yourself that opportunity to really reflect. And I really think on a daily basis, you know, am I in line with living with what's important to me or getting to know what is important to me? No. And it's scary because, you know, if you've defined yourself your whole life by, you know, service to others through your job or even service to others as a, as a parent or a spouse, and suddenly you have this moment of realization that the situation I'm in is not allowing me to be my best self. Mm-hmm. Situation I'm in um, is actually eating me up inside. Then you can forecast forward. If I change to be myself, all I see is I'm going to be wrecking other people's lives. Um, that that can really be hard. And so I have a another client who has had some health issues, and um, has really realized that the job she has, which is a really stress filled leadership role um, in a city far away from her family is she can't, she can't do the job. She, she can't stay in the job and take care of her health. Mm-hmm. She, she knows that if the job was in a place closer to her family and she had her family support, that would be a different thing, but it's not there. But she is worried that if she leaves, it's going to be really hard on the company Mm-hmm. And what we've really had to coach around is her ideas that if you hire me, you get everything. And I did say to her, work is not slavery, <laughs> <laughs> which is a pretty provocative statement. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, but a lot of us feel this, you know, we know we're in the right place and the, the wrong place. We're not in the right place. We're not growing professionally it's taking a toll on us in terms of stress. Maybe our health is suffering. Maybe our relationships are suffering. We know you. we've got to make a change. But instead of saying, what am I going to get when I leave? We worry about what, what are, what's Susan going to do at the office? Well, what's Tom going to do? And then we also think everything that I've been focusing on in the last couple of years, what if it turns out it didn't matter because no one does it when I leave? Mm-hmm. So it's it's really fraught 
And it takes a lot of self-regard, you know, normal self-regard to be able to say it may be hard on them, but it's harder on me staying in a situation that's killing me. Mm-hmm. That's really difficult for people. Have you seen that? Oh, it's absolutely difficult. And I think it's this idea of where, you know, um, it falls into the good girls and um, understanding where one ends and where the job may begin, right? And knowing that there can be, that it doesn't have to be all encompassing. You can be an amazing employee and have boundaries mm-hmm. and saying, okay, this, it is okay for me not to do this. But it goes back to, I think that, you know, being able to check in and look at, okay, here I'm spending all of my time doing X. What are the results of that? Right. Am I just doing it to say, oh, look, my schedule's so full or are there results that come that can be impacted? And I don't mean like immediate, right? Not a transactional result, like getting a cup of coffee, but what does this lead to? And does this, does this pay off in the way that I'm thinking it will? Or is this something that's keeping me busy so I can, I can show and say, look how hard I'm working. So I'm going to go to a really woo wooey kind of place here, but you know, it's like holding in your mind the idea at the same time, I am absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. I'm as large as the universe. And at the exact same time, I'm nothing. It's mm-hmm. like so hard to think about it. Mm-hmm. But in a in this kind of difficult job situation where you know you need to leave and maybe you're motivated by being really a good girl or being compliant, good boy, to 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 know that really in the big scheme of things, they'll fill your job in about two weeks. Mm-hmm. And in the big scheme of things, you are the universe. So if you are really unsatisfied, if you are really unfulfilled as the universe, you've got to do something about it. And at the same time, you don't matter. You know, it's like it's a very hard concept, but I have never seen an organization that cannot replace somebody. Whether they left, somebody left under great circumstances and everybody adored that person and that person could come back tomorrow and get big hugs and all that sort of stuff, or whether somebody left under a cloud, everybody can be replaceable. Mm-hmm. And so holding that in your mind, I'm, I'm miserable. My health is suffering. I'm not growing. I don't enjoy this situation. And it's really hard for me to think about doing something else, but I'm the universe. So I can make this happen. And also, I am so insignificant that they can fill me my job tomorrow. Actually might be the healthiest thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Is that is it way too out there? No, I don't think that's way too out there. I think that's... Um, uh, I, I, no, I don't think that's way too out there. Because um, we... But we have that dichotomy, right? Like, I'm everything to this job and we have that dichotomy. No, and I don't think that's way too out there. I think that's an important concept for people to think about. And the thing is, is that if I'm in my integrity, you know, which is integrity is a really important value to me. If I'm in my integrity, even if I've given my notice and I'm, you know, today is my last day at work, I'm going to be as productive and as helpful and as impactful as I can be until the moment I leave the door, not because I want somebody to pat me on the head, but because I want to be in my integrity. Yeah. 
And so I can think of myself as somebody who's replaceable, but still have an impact because of my integrity. Right? Mm-hmm. That's, I think it's important to keep that in mind. Well, and I think it goes back to something you said earlier. So if you go from, if you decide to stop being the good girl, it doesn't mean you go to being the bad girl, the rebel, right? Screw you. Let me show you. It's about being in line with your integrity within your values. And sometimes that can be a tightrope. You know, sometimes the shades are just right there. And, um, and, and the other thing I think that's so important is that, you know, a lot of times I have clients that say, well, I just don't want to make a mistake. And I say, sometimes we have to go a little, veer a little bit out or be out of alignment and we come back in. So an example would be, this is an example I use and maybe it's just too weird is, you know, if you're driving your car and your, your tire's not working, it's out of alignment. You don't go, oh, the tires or the car's bad and get rid of the car. You take the car, the car to the tire shop, or I do at least, and you get your tires realigned, right? You get them back in alignment. So when we drift or we try something and maybe, you know, from going to, from the good girl, it's hard to see that, that ever so slight boundary of being in the middle right? That middle ground that you're talking about. But so sometimes we swing onto the other end of the pendulum swing of, look at me, you know, I'm going to be the rebellion, right? But that's being out of alignment with who you are. And it's about coming back in closer to who you are. I love when people make mistakes mm-hmm. because, you know, somebody someday decided to put peaches in salsa, right? And like, <laughs> you might think that would be a big mistake, but it's actually super delicious. Mm-hmm. You know, one day a guy made a pot of glue and it absolutely didn't stick to anything, mm-hmm. but he realized it made excellent post-it notes, <laughs> yep. right? So my view is any mistake, I mean, ex- it, with the exception when somebody's life is in jeopardy, but really any mistake is an opportunity to say, oh, maybe this is actually even better. Mm-hmm. Like in, instead of like, oh, what a verdict on my worthiness, it's like, Wow. You know, I I put this into a cake instead of that. I wonder how it tastes instead of, oh, my gosh, I better throw it away. And then it can be, if it doesn't taste good, note to self. Note to self. Garlic, salt, and chocolate cake just don't work. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And you don't need to beat yourself up about it. We We want to beat ourselves up about it, but it's so ineffective. I mean, I can still beat myself up about things and go, okay, Corinne, this isn't this isn't helping the situation at all. Right. The other day I, I had a flank steak, which actually I like flank steak a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. And I made a marinade and I marinated it. And the marinade smelled a little bit weird, but I'm like, okay. You know, it was like soy sauce and um, garlic. Um, and what else did I put in there? Oh, I put sesame oil, some other, you know, stuff. Anyway, I cooked it and it tasted like horrible. Uh-huh. It really tasted bad. And I and I looked at the sesame oil, and it had expired six months ago. Mm-hmm. And you know what I said to myself as I pushed the rest of the flank steak into the trash? Good to know. <laughs> there you go. Sesame sesame oil does not last forever. Good <laughs> to know. You know, I could have been really mad because it was actually on sale, so it was like eight hundred eight dollars and fifty cents worth of steak. You know, uh-huh. I then threw in the trash, which my grandmother would probably have a conniption over. But you know what? I, I knew I was never going to eat it again. It didn't taste good. Uh-huh. But I did learn something really important about sesame oil. <laughs> we all have now. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, exactly right. 
And that, I mean, I think that becomes important. Good to know, note to self. Again, that goes back to that growth mindset. That goes back to being compassionate. And one of the things that Kristen Neff, who's from University of Texas, and she's a compassion researcher, one of the things that I learned from her, as she's been a guest on the show, is that compassion is the biggest motivator for ch- for change. And so we have this, again, cultural belief of let me beat you up so that I can get you to change or, you know, beat ourselves up. And it works short term. It's just not sustainable. So really, if we want to, you know, learn and grow and evolve into our best self, it's really about being from a place of compassion. Right. And as a leader, you know, being instead of like popping off and blowing up when someone uncovers a $900,000, you know, financial impropriety is to really be compassionate and say, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Such good work. Mm -hmm. Wow. Let's find a solution instead of like, you're freaking kidding me, right? Oh my God. That's not compassionate. That's not compassionate. And then it just shuts them down and reinforces, gives the employee evidence of, see, this is why I don't bring this stuff up. Right. And which makes me think about teenagers, like in parenting teenagers. You know, when your child tells you that one of their friends is drinking a lot or is sexually active, or is in a troubled household, or um, cheated on a test. I'm trying to think of things my children told me, right? Or got kicked out of school, um, suspended or something. You know, as a parent, you can, your fear for your own child could make you say, I can't believe you're telling me about, you know, Sarah's doing that and you're never going to see her again and blah, 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 all because you're anxious and worried about protecting your child. But if you do it from compassion place, that this must be tough for your kid. Mm -hmm. So you ask your 13 year old, well, how do you feel when you see Sarah drunk? Take yourself out of it. Ask them. Mm -hmm. So hard to do. So hard to do. But you know what it turns out to be? So my you know, my daughter, as you know, is 20 years old and she came with me to Lori Foley's funeral and um, because she's, her college is not that far away. And so we were um, at the wake, uh, which was after the funeral, Lori arranged to have a wake at an Irish pub, which was really fun. So I was sort of mingling and my daughter was mingling and she was talking to some coaches that were there and they were talking one of them said that she was a coach about body image. And um, the coach asked my daughter, what was it like growing up with Michelle as your mother? I mean, what was her attitude about body image? What, you know, what do you know about body image? And my daughter paused for a minute. The woman actually wrote me a note about it because she was so struck. But my daughter paused and she said, you know, that I never heard my mother criticize her body and she never criticized mine. And it gave me the space uh, to kind of come to terms with my, my body, my, my own self. She said, the only thing I remember is my mother sent me a text one time of Serena Williams, and you could see cellulite. And my mother said, which is true, I did say in this text, if Serena can have cellulite, so can we. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as a parent, what... I was able to listen to my child when she would say, mom, I'm, you know, I think my hips are too big, too small, too. I think my legs are too long, too short. I, you know, whatever it was, my hair is too fuzzy. Um, 
I could just listen from a place of, of real compassion and, and just ask her, how are you feeling about that? What does that feel for you? I mean, to me, it was like a huge victory when this woman pointed out, you know, your, your kid's got her head screwed on, right? About this one thing, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Which causes so much trouble. I I did not raise my children to be compliant. Mm -hmm. I did not raise my children to be good, good girls or good boys. I tried to raise them to be humans. Mm-hmm. With, with the opportunity to think for themselves and check in with themselves instead of, what do I need to do to please this other person? Right. It's well done. Well, Michelle, unfortunately, our time has come to an no! end. <laughs> I'm not done being good yet. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you again next month. And I know our listeners just love it. So thank you oh, so much. It's my utter pleasure. And uh, you are great. And and even though we're separated by an entire continent, whenever we do these calls, I feel like you're right with me. Well, thank so you. Thanks. So one of the things that I want to add to this conversation that Michelle and I talked about is mindset, right? When you have to find a creative solution, but you don't believe you are creative. And I really want to challenge you on this idea of creativity. A long time ago, probably about a decade ago, I used to not consider myself a creative person because I, the, what I, the story I had in my head about what creativity looked like was I should have an easel and be painting or for whatever reason, it came up with art. And one of the the worst assignments that I ever had in college, um, I was a visual studies major, film and photography, in which I created, it was an individual major. But so I had to be creative to put it together. But I had this uh, chalk, uh, charcoal class. And every Tuesday, I had to do a self-portrait. And that was like the death of me to have to draw. But that's what I thought creative was. And at some point, um, many, many years ago, somebody pointed out to me that what I do, and this is even before the show, what I do is actually creative, whether it was writing workouts, putting together stuff. So I challenge you to think about if you believe you're not creative, how is creativity showing up in your life? How are you resourceful? And maybe that's, if you had that word different, would that change your belief about your creativity? You know, are you creative in the kitchen? And don't look at the days when you're exhausted and you're just trying to get dinner on the table and maybe it's a box of cornflakes, right? But looking at how you are creative in your life in the different aspects, it could be that, it could be in how you work out, it could be how you try to parent and maybe come up with a solution with your kids. It could be, you know, how to be creative in connecting with maybe your employees at work or your team at work or maybe with dealing with your boss. There's so many ways and it's not just limited, like to my limited viewpoint of it has to be an easel that that's how you're creative. So going back to that mindset bit, we talked a lot about the different things like the inner voice and the workplace and being a good girl, but really going back to the mindset, what is it that you believe about yourself and really focusing on instead of telling yourself, I'm not creative, because then that shuts the door and it gives it almost gives you permission. Actually, no, it gives you permission that you don't even have to be resourceful. You don't even have to figure it out because you're not creative, right? It's a way for us to kind of duck on out of there. But when we can believe that, hey, I am creative, I can find a creative solution. And it's a matter of being resourceful. 
And maybe you can't do it when you're in a place of fear. Our brains are not wired that way. When you're in fear, it's fight, flight, or flee. So you're not going to be creative. So for me, it's always, I have to calm down so that I can use my entire brain, my wizard brain with a W instead of my lizard brain, which is fight, flight, or flee. And then I can be resourceful and figure out how to solve this problem. And sometimes it's a matter of sleeping on it. And I remember years ago, and you've probably heard Martha talk about it, Martha Beck, on the show where there's that idea of take, you know, sleeping on it and then your brain is processing it through the night and you wake up in the morning and you may have a solution. So I'm circling back with you. If you don't believe you are creative, figure out, you know, what is your story about that and why do you choose to believe that? And then look in your life of where are the areas where you are creative and reframe that and say, okay, here's where I'm creative. Maybe this is an area for me cooking years ago. I was, I always felt like I wasn't creative. I was the, here's the box of cereal. My husband's gone. Right. But even that was creative or trying to figure out how to get food for my family or uh, where, <laughs> who would make us food. Look inside your mind, choose what you believe and then go out there and practice and be willing to fail. Like creativity, again, is not about being in front of an easel. I guess it's not behind an easel, in front of an easel. So thanks so much for listening today. And I want to do, a, it's time to do a shout out for the, those of you that post iTunes reviews. Thank you so much. Piggy Friendly, it's your, your time for a shout out. Love, love, love. Thank you so much. And remember, send me an email. I want to see a picture. I want to know who you are be, besides this iTunes handle. Thanks so much. And thanks for listening today. And until next time, I'm smiling big for you. On a lake, she is dreaming. She is drifting. Never been so 